My name is Pastor Mike Landsman, and this is the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ. This podcast is taken from my weekly Sunday morning sermons. I pray that as you listen to them, they will be a blessing to you and strengthen you in your walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's what we have for today. Two weeks ago, I preached on the pattern, and last week I preached on the plan, and so I figured we'd continue the alliterative theme today, and we're going to talk this morning about peace. We're going to talk about peace. And if there's anything that marks our current cultural moment, it is the opposite of peace. You know, there's a passage in the Bible that talks about Woe to those who run around saying, peace, peace, while there is no peace. Everywhere we look, it seems that peace is on a short supply. Our country continues to be bogged down in conflicts, half the world away militarily, and bogged down in conflicts on our own doorsteps, as well as the civil unrest brought on by fallout from COVID, along with economic collapse in places like South Africa country I deeply love and miss. And this conflict and all of these conflicts seem to be dominating the news cycles. And let's face it, conflict sells. Conflict sells. It gets the clicks. It gets, it's what drives folks to TV or to the computers to catch their favorite pundit who many of don't even try to inform anymore so much as shape what you should believe. And this is a problem, brothers and sisters, on both sides of the political aisle, unless you think I'm playing favorites with anyone. As you know me by now, both sides, and even the middle, deserve their share of critique. One of the tropes in modern entertainment that you might see is best played out in uh, buddy cop movies, or the movies where there's two roommates, right, with the opposite characteristics, and they, own, they have to learn to live together, uh, and they clash, right? And it's only through this clashing that they're able to gain some semblance of peace after finding out they're not that different after all, but the little tension still remains. And today's reading from Ephesians reminded me of that. Except the peace for St. Paul... It isn't the potentially hostile, agree-to-disagree method of negotiating complex relationships. No, for St. Paul, God has taken different disparate groups, and he has made them into one. He has made them into one. So today, I'm going to uh, do something a little bit different, and it's not too different because I've done it before. But I wanted to start at the end of the text from Ephesians today to make a point. And then we'll kind of, you know, 90s indie movie, it, and we'll kind of work back with it. We'll start at the beginning, at the end, and then we'll go back to the beginning. So St. Paul says in Ephesians 2.20, Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. St. Paul likes to use the imagery of a house or a building, and he does it in other epistles as well. And when you build something, when you build a house or when you build 
a structure of any type, what's the, probably the most important thing you have to do? You have to lay the foundation. You have to lay the foundation. Shantae and I, we like to watch this. There's this one show we watch. It's a 100-day dream home. 100-day dream home. And in the show, when they are going to build their dream home in 100 days, they don't just show up at the property and then just start nailing wood together and then like try to stick it in the ground and then hope for the best that the dream home's going to stand up. No, that's not what they do. They don't just haphazardly prop stuff up. They have to prepare the ground. So if there's lots of grass and trees, they have to get, what do they have to do? They have to clear it out. They have to dig trenches for the pipes so they can connect to the water. They have to lay the foundation. They have to flatten the ground, dig a bunch of stuff up, lay in the foundation, pour the concrete. And then after the foundation is built, then they start to assemble the house on top of the foundation with their concrete blocks and wood and steel structural frame. And when God builds his household, he does the same thing. He digs and sets and pours a concrete for the foundation. And Jesus is right there, the cornerstone that everything connects to. I'm not sure what side of the church is Sean Joy. Maybe you can tell me, is it on this side in the back, our cornerstone for the church? Or is it up front here on the side? Does anybody know? It's in the back corner. I knew it's in one of the corners. We have four, so I figure, right? I can't. If you go back, you have the cornerstone, right? The date that it was made and the date it was set. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone that the foundation of everything is built on top of. And then the foundation that's, uh, that's there is built on, St. Paul says, the apostles and the prophets. So this household of God, this new temple, he says it in verse 22, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. The household of God is being built up to become God's holy temple. So that means anything that does not hold to the apostolic testimony of our faith, if the foundation of our faith is on the apostles and who the apostles were and what the apostles witnessed and what they testified of and what they all gave their lives in martyrdom to witness to, if anything that we hold to be true in our faith that does not hold to what they taught us, to their testimony, is not part of that foundation. And everything that St. Paul says here about peace in Ephesians rests on this idea that God is building His household, this temple. And it's not a physical temple located in one particular place in time. Right, we had that reading from 2 Samuel chapter 7. And in that reading, right, David says, God, I'm going to build you a temple. And the prophet Nathan says, great idea, David. You do that. God is pleased. And then God tells Nathan, no. But somebody else will do it. So Nathan comes back and says, sorry, I got a little bit carried away. That happens sometimes. You know, I do it when I preach. Sometimes I get carried away. They didn't say maybe shouldn't lie. Right, but Nathan says to David, God's pleased with you. You're doing a good job. You're not going to build a temple. Your son is going to build the temple. So David's like, cool, sweet. I'll just get all the materials ready and then he can do it. 
But that temple goes on to be destroyed. Solomon's temple is destroyed. And then Solomon's temple is rebuilt after the exiles of Judah come back after the Babylonian captivity under uh, Nehemiah and Ezra. And they rebuild the temple. But at one point they're happy because they've rebuilt the temple and they can sacrifice to God. And on the other hand, they're sad because the former temple was beautiful. And gorgeous is the synonym for beautiful, right? It was beautiful. It was gorgeous. It was soul-stirring. And the new temple was It'll do. That's okay. And then there's a process of beautification that, that happened that was completed in the, in the New Testament era. But even that gets destroyed. In AD 70, there's a group of, of Jewish rebels that are like, we've had it with Rome. And if you, knew, if you know anything about the Roman Empire back in those days, it's not a good idea to rebel against Rome. Because if you do, well... Basically, get destroyed. This is what happens to them. And Jerusalem gets destroyed, and the, the temple gets destroyed again, never to be rebuilt. But, brothers and sisters, what's happening here is God's household is being built up into a new temple. Not a physical temple limited to one particular place for one particular country at one particular place in time. We are being built up into God's temple. The Spirit of God dwells in us. No longer dwells in buildings made of stone. No longer dwells in buildings made of wood. That doesn't mean that we can't have beautiful buildings made of stone. And it doesn't mean we can't have beautiful buildings made of wood. I mean, look at where we're standing right now. This is, church is a beautiful temple, a beautiful testament to the God we love and the God we serve. But we are, as individuals, being brought together to serve as God's temple. Because when we are brought into Christ, the Spirit of God comes to dwell in us. And just as the temple in the Old Testament had to be made holy and purified, right? That's that's what God is doing with us. That is why we confess our sins. God is sanctifying us. He is making us holy, a temple fit for the Spirit of God to dwell. And then let's go backwards to verse 11. Let's talk a little bit about strangers. Therefore, remember that one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, St. Paul, he doesn't pull any punches sometimes. He addresses the Gentile believers here at Ephesus and the churches in, in, in that area. And he brings up the fact that you were strangers. But he says... You were strangers. And the translation I read out of the ESV, it says, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh. At one time you were strangers. So if they were or at one time strangers, but he's addressing it this way now, what does that mean? It means that they're not strangers anymore. It means they're not alienated anymore. Well, alienated from what? 
to the commonwealth of Israel, he says here. They're no longer strangers to the covenant. At one point, they were strangers to the covenants of promise. And this reference to the covenants of promise is a reference to the promises and the covenants that God made to the patriarchs, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Those were the covenants of promise. And the circumcision, uncircumcision reference here, if you don't know, is a reference to those who were Jews, those who were circumcised, and those who were uncircumcised, they were not Jews. And that was, circumcision in the Bible is the mark or the identifier of God's covenant people. But it's also a term that that they would use to sort of look down on outside nations and on Gentiles or even on sinners. In 1 Samuel, David says, uh, with David and Goliath, you know the story. David brings the food to the camp and Goliath is there mocking Israel and mocking God every day. And David finally, he pulls up to the camp to bring food to his brothers and he hears this and he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And then all of his brothers and friends are like, shh, hush, shut up, shut up. You're going to make him angry. What are you even doing here? You're just trying to make yourself look good. Dumb kid, get out of here, go home. And we know how that story ended. If you don't, go read 1 Samuel 17. What's absent here is St. Paul doesn't say, you were all just one human family. You're all headed towards the same God just by different pathways. He says, no. He says, he, he says you had, as Gentiles, no hope. Because those who the promises of the covenant had been revealed to had an advantage. Because God chose them and revealed himself to them and made covenants with their forefathers. With the end goal being that those who are outside will be able to come inside. And in other places, and we don't have time to get into it, he's actually going to be very harsh with his words about the people who God did give the covenants to, to the Jews. There's stories in the book of Acts where Paul's like, I've had it with you. I'm going to go talk to the Gentiles now because at least they'll listen to me. Right? So they don't get off either. And he makes this point in, in, in the book of Romans as well. He says this in verse 13. Let's talk about being brought near. That they were once strangers. He says, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now notice what St. Paul says here. In Christ Jesus, the Gentiles were once far off. They were once far away. But look at what's happened. They have been brought near. They've been brought near to God through the blood of Jesus. And last week we talked a little bit about redemption as being purchased back or being bought from slavery or being bought from, from servitude. And here we see that this redemption isn't just for the Jewish people. It's for the Gentiles too. Jesus Christ is our peace. And he is also their peace. 
And he has taken both of these groups of people, the Jew and the Greek, right, or the Jew and the Gentiles, he has taken those two different groups of people and he has made them one. Now we hear texts like this and we forget just how stratified the social world, their culture was. And this went both ways, right? So St. Paul's words here would have been seen as revolutionary to them both. Because one thing that humans are very good at is putting ourselves into different groups. Well, we're in and you're out. We have the goods and you don't have the goods at all. We're very good at setting up divisions like that. We're good, you're bad. Oftentimes when we do that, we become blind to our own problems. So, not only... Not only what we just talked about, right? About that being revolutionary, but... The law expressed in ordinances, St. Paul here says, has been abolished. Because God is trying to create one new man out of two different groups. And this body that God is building them into is the church. And when he talks about the law of commandments expressed in ordinances here, this was put in place to manage their sin. Right? So God could dwell in their midst. And the wall of hostility, or the wall of enmity, some translation will say, isn't, all, isn't necessarily also the, the wall between them and God. It's also a wall of enmity between those two different groups of people. That God has broken down that wall as well. Now, in the cross of Christ... We, who have become the church, we have been reconciled to God primarily, but then we have also been reconciled to one another. In verse 17, we'll talk about peace now. He came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both had access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, And members of the household of God. So he says, you Gentiles who were far off. He said just a minute ago, you were brought near. He said, Christ preached peace to you. But Christ didn't just preach peace. (laughs) Christ did not preach peace just to those who are far away. He says here that Christ preaches peace to those who are near because both groups needed it. The groups that were far away needed to hear that. And guess what? The group that had the promises, that had the covenants, that had the patriarchs, they needed to hear it too because nobody is without excuse. Both groups of people, the ones that were far away and the ones that were near, they both, in a sense, are the same. Because they still suffer from sin and death and the corruption that that brings about in humanity and plays itself out in human systems. The enmity, like I said just now, is not just enmity between them and God, but between these two different groups of people. A friend of mine the Reverend Dr. Stephen Young makes the point that what St. Paul has in mind here is that 
the Gentiles that had been brought near is essentially the regathering of, of Israel. So we have to remember that in the Old Testament, you had, well, at one point you had united Israel. And then they split. You had the kingdom of Israel and then you had the kingdom of Judah. Ten tribes went with Israel and two tribes went with Judah. And what happens is the ten tribes have become so wicked that God uses the Assyrians to judge them. The Assyrians come in, wipe out the ten uh, ten tribes and carry them all off into exile. And what the Assyrians used to do is the Assyrians would then, they would bring you into exile and then they would just, you know, just kind of repopulate you among their, their different areas. And then you would be assimilated into that culture forcefully. And so that was seen as then spreading out kind of to the, to the whole world. So what's happening here is those Gentiles include those who are outside, but then those who are also at one point inside who then were forced outside. God is bringing all of them back together. And he's regrafting all of them back together in the church and in Christ. And like I said a minute ago, those who were out far away needed to hear this message of peace. And then those that were near needed to hear that message of peace. Because the ones that were near, God gave them the Torah. And they failed to follow it over and over again. So they also need to have peace with God and with one another. Nobody gets out of needing reconciliation through Jesus Christ. And then St. Paul says here, You are fellow citizens of the saints and the members of the household of God. And then he closes it all off with, uh, with a reference to the Holy Trinity. Through Jesus, we have access in one spirit to the Father. Through Jesus, we have access to one spirit, in one spirit, to the Father. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In early Trinitarian language. There's, and the reason why I just take a second to mention that is because there are people who say, well, that develops later. It's not really part of Christianity at all. It's just sort of this philosophical addition at this council that happened all the way back. No. We have very clear language, very clear reference to it right here. So, what can we learn from this? Now, this is tough. Because when you preach, you have to try... And not only interpret the text, what it meant for the hearers and the history behind it and the stuff that they were going through and how that helped them. But you also have to contextualize that for us because, surprise, surprise, we're living thousands of years removed. But it doesn't make it less true for us. So in one sense, the most important thing we need to take away from this is that every single one of us were outside. Every single one of us were far away. Every single one of us, we were strangers and we were aliens from the... Co- I used to love that when I was a kid. The Bible talks about aliens. I'm like, man, it's not aliens, aliens. I didn't learn until later, right? That aliens are the Bible. is a way of speaking to people who are, are foreigners, right? But even if there were aliens, they would probably need to be reconciled to Christ too. Anyway. I won't get on that. That'll be weird. I would say Google, but don't Google it. There's just some crazy stuff about that out there. Anyway, but all of us, right? 
in our day and age, we have enmity with God. And we have enmity with one another. And the one thing that unites all of us is Jesus Christ and our being incorporated into Jesus Christ and our reception into the kingdom of Jesus Christ and our becoming Christ's life and our being built together into the body of the church. St. John Chrysostom says, don't you see? The Greek does not have to become a Jew. Rather, both enter into a new condition. His, name is, his aim is not to bring Greek believers into being as different kinds of Jews, but rather to create both anew. Right? So God is making anew, bringing together, creating one new group of people. And the early Christians understood that being brought together into one new group of people made them a different family. They understood that being brought into the body of Christ, being built into the temple, becoming one new people, they understood, I think, better than any of us do today, that that trumped everything else. It trumped their social obligations. It trumped their political preferences. It trumped everything. And in that day and age, to be a Christian meant you were severing yourself basically from everything that the culture affirmed and said was good. All of the cultural... Because we have to remember that day and age, there was no secular religious separation. It was all joined together. So there was no separation of church and there was no separation of state. It was all just one thing. So if you wanted to have a successful business, you would have to participate in festivals and in these festivals they would offer sacrifices to what the Christians would see as false gods. And so those uh, the, the, the Jewish persuasion, they were already doing this. And then when the church comes around, the incorporation of the Jews and Gentiles together, the Gentiles started to participate in the worship. They had to leave all of that behind themselves. And that cost them. And it wound up them losing a lot of stuff. And it wound up having a lot of them becoming martyred. Because they were seen as, as bad people. They were seen as antisocial. And they were even seen as atheists by the surrounding culture because they would not worship or affirm the gods that were so prevalent in and made up a core, a core feature of the culture of the time. So that's why I say they have a better understanding of, of, of what that means than we do. That that, but they were able among themselves to have peace. And I say all of that because that doesn't change with us. We have peace with one another in Christ. And so those of us who are still in Christ are being made into one new man, one new family, one temple. So the Spirit of God can dwell us. So that means anything else Anything that we use as an identifier of who we are, political, whatever, all of that is subservient to our identities as Christians, as being in Christ. <sighs> I'm, 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 please, uh, all right, I'm going to just go ahead and say it. Okay, so... Even after I wrote this, I was like, should I talk about this? Uh, I'm going to do it. Okay. Um, 
And if you want to have a talk with me afterwards about this, you can email me, you can call me, and we can talk. So right, to bring it home at a very practical level, right? How the peace of Christ contrasts with false peace. Or how in Christ is where we are truly brought together. Right now in our country, there's a debate raging between academia, the media, and, and everyone, basically. And this debate is about the specter of racism that has long haunted the United States. And this debate is becoming more and more inflamed. And on the one hand, you have those who subscribe to, to a point of view which argues that everything about American social life, everything is fundamentally constructed in race. So economic, political, and historical relationships and arrangements, everything in our society, every single thing is, is supporting the system of racism. Okay? So that means everything in our society is racist and thus needs to be taken down to the studs and rebuilt. And so this means that everyone is racist because racism is so deep in our bones, it's so deeply a part of our life that we're totally blind to it and its effects. And if you protest against this or think, well, maybe this isn't quite a helpful way of looking at it, it just proves that that's true. Where it's no longer an attitude of the heart, where a person consciously discriminates against someone because of the color of their skin, but something that you just are, that you have no control over, that just exists on a spectrum. And this point of view has seeped into the church. But the opposite of this is another problem. And this problem is the refusal to see the effects of systems of racism at all. Because they're there. And they're real. Systems of racism exist in our culture and in our society. They're there. We can't deny that. And this has had an effect on our society. Right? And so people will say, America had problems in the past, but now those problems are good. We've solved it. I mean, a couple of things here and there, but by and large, it's all done with. Because they have an idealized version of American history where all of that stuff is gone. Or they have an idealized version of how liberalism in democracy is supposed to work. Positing that the progress, and we had made progress, the progress that we have made shows that all we need is to try to just embrace more liberal values. And brothers and sisters, I think both of these are equally wrong. One sees it as part of who you are, something that you can't escape, something that you're born with. And the other one sees it as, nope, not a problem, nothing that we have to deal with. Both of those we have to avoid. And the thing is, brothers and sisters, both of those are in service to, by our, or, or seen in our culture as serving the greater good of bringing peace. Because we need peace. We need racial peace. We do. Like I said, 
America has made some great strides and some great progress. The fact that I could marry who I married and have the kids that we have, I think proves that. In another day and age, I would not have been able to do that. Both of these are trying to serve peace. But brothers and sisters, this is not the way of Christ. Because true peace is the peace that has created us anew, as Chrysostom said. In Christ, all of the walls that divide us, all of the walls between the races, all of the walls between whatever, God has broken those walls down in Christ. And it is only in Christ that we have true peace. It's only in Christ that we can have true racial unity. It's only in Christ where the peace of Christ beginning, that, that starts to reign now, will fully realize itself at the end. And just as the early Christians knew this, about how being in Christ formed them into a community that was able to weather any storm where that peace reigns, it didn't mean, right, that they didn't have problems with one another. When you have peace, when we have peace with one another, it doesn't mean we never have issues. <laughs> I've said a lot of things since I've been here. From the pulpit and in private. And there have been times where people have, have said, uh, what do you mean by that? Or maybe you should have done that in a different way. Maybe you should have said it in a different way. Is this what you meant? It doesn't mean we're never going to have this news. Us being together at peace doesn't mean when we get to consistory that we hold hands and we sit around in circles and we throw glitter in the air and, you know, and have a party. No. Our church government is pretty good. We're pretty healthy. We're very healthy. We have great relationships with one another. But that doesn't mean that every time we meet together, that it's all rainbows and sparkle ponies. Right? Because peace doesn't pave over differences. Peace, the peace of Christ, doesn't pretend like differences don't exist. They do. And in our culture and in our society, we're trying to steamroll anything that looks like it's different because there are no differences. And that's just not the way it is. And in Christ, we, learn, we don't look past our differences, but we learn to see our brother and sister who Christ died for, who Christ redeemed with his own blood. And we learn to love them as Christ loved us. And I can go on and on about this, but I'm not going to. Suffice to say that Jesus Christ is our peace. And it is only in the church, it is only in Christ, that we can have true and lasting peace that acknowledges our differences but unites us in the fact that we are blood-bought, spirit-sanctified, faith-filled people.
And so to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, be all glory together with his Father who is from everlasting and is all holy good and life-creating spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ. If you have a few minutes, I'd like to ask you to go to gofundme.com slash zionstonechurchrepairfund. Our bell tower is in need of some major renovation and repairs, and we could use whatever help you're able to give to us. If you'd like to find out more about us, check us out on our Facebook page, Zion Stone UCC, or on our website, zionstoneucc.com. Thanks again for listening. I pray that these sermons will continue to strengthen you in your walk with Jesus Christ. And may the blessings of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be with you.